Well, as we begin this morning, I want us to, to think about um, what is one thing that all of us in this room have in common? What's one thing? You can say it out loud this morning. We all have eyes. We're alive. That's good. <laughs> Do what now? That's good, Brad. That's good. We won't always be alive. We'll have struggles. We all have stories of struggles, probably, definitely. Yeah. Fuzz. We lose stuff. We all lose stuff. That's good. That's real good. We do lose stuff. What's some other things we have in common? Do what? We're all God's sheep. We're all sinners. It was cool at 9 o'clock. Somebody says we're all sinners, and then somebody across the other room says we're all awesome. I love that. I love that. We're all awesome sinners. It's great. It's good. This is fun. Think about this. What do we all, um, we might have it on us this morning. What do we maybe have in our pocket or maybe our purses or our wallets? What? Money. Money. Yes. Now, some of you in here, some of you are going to say, I I don't have any of that. I don't hear any of that. That's all right. I've got some in my cup holder out in the car. You can have some of that. (laughs) We all have money. You think about this, uh, around the table of life, I don't know if, what your holiday table looks like or, or sometimes when you have people over for dinner. I mean, you think about, we all have money of some sorts. There's different levels, degree of, of wealth. And um, as we think this morning about money and wealth, I, I want us to think of some, some questions, though. Um, because what we do with our money is a big deal. It says a lot. And it really deals with the heart. I mean, that's what Jesus was talking about in the parable that we just saw in the video, is that he's talking about the heart. He's talking about what do we build the foundation of our life upon? What is our heart chasing after? What's the foundation of our soul built upon? Um, and so when it comes to money, when it comes to wealth, we, we all have some degree of it. Um, but I want to ask an, even a better question this morning is, is, what do we let money do to us? Not, not just what do we do with money, but what do we let money do with us? Maybe another way to think about it. Think about some, some scriptures this morning that, that help us understand wealth, money, because the text we're going to look at today um, is one that definitely deals with that and how money can do a lot of things to us and lead us down the wrong path. In Deuteronomy, we have a few scriptures that encourages us. In chapter 8, verse 18, the law tells us, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. And so God is giving us power. He's giving us strength to make money, to, to earn wages, to make wealth. In Proverbs 10, Solomon says these wise words, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich or, or brings wealth. And he adds no sorrow to it. And so here's this idea that, that God... It gives us the great blessing, the great joy, that the grace, that the gift to bring in wealth. He gives us that ability, gives us that strength, the gift of it. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord, and, and wealth is, is definitely part of that. 
And so what we gather from that is, okay, money itself, wealth itself, riches itself is, is not bad in itself, according to what the Lord tells us. You think about what the Bible talks about when it talks about wealth and what we do with it. We're to, to do a few things with wealth, right? Care for our needs. God's given us wealth to care for our own needs, to take care of what we need, emphasis on need, um, to care for the needs of our family, to be a provider for the needs of our crew, uh, to help others who are in need, uh, the poor, the afflicted, uh, versus like in James chapter 1 where it talks about the orphan in need, the widow in need. We're to care for the needs of others. And also we read in Scripture in many different places that our money is to go toward the advancement of the gospel, that we are to give so that the, the ministry can take place. Our neighbors can hear the gospel. People in places all across the world could hear the gospel. And so our wealth is to be used for that. And Jesus talks about money a lot. In fact, if you read uh, the gospels, uh, you see that Jesus talks about money more than anything. In fact, if you read throughout Scripture, there's thousands of verses about money, and Jesus talks a lot about it. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this in verse 19 and 20. He says, Do not store up your treasures for yourselves here on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for your treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What was Jesus talking about? Sure, he was talking about wealth. He was talking ultimately about what we treasure most while we're here on earth. You see, he wants us to store up treasures in heaven, not here on earth. And if you and I, we desire to be like Jesus, we want to be his disciples, we've got to ask the question, how did Jesus store up treasures in heaven while he was here? You see, Jesus stored up treasures here on earth heavenly treasures while he was here on earth by doing what? By sacrificially loving others. By caring for the needs of others and ultimately for the glory of God. You see, Jesus treasured the Father's glory. We see that he prayed in John 17, 4, Father, I glorified you here on earth. That was Jesus' great treasure, the glory of God. And he did that by loving others, meeting the greatest need of all for others through his sacrificial death. But there's a competition to treasuring God. There's a competition to treasuring God in his glory. And as we look at scripture, as we see what Jesus says here, it seems to be wealth. The very thing that God has blessed us with, give us the strength and power to earn, also can be a source of competition in our life. A competition for our heart, your heart and my heart. You see, being rich, as we just read, being wealthy in itself is not bad, as we're going to see this morning. But what we do with our wealth, what we do with our riches, how we handle them, what we let money do to us, ultimately reveals what kind of heart we have and what our heart treasures, and ultimately who our Lord is who our master is. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and he will love the other or he will be devoted to one. He will despise the other. And so you cannot serve God and 
wealth, meaning you can't treasure both. Jesus showed the competitive battle of wealth and the fight for our soul, the fight for our heart. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13 in a parable. We'll take one verse, but he's talking about this um, competition really for our heart and for our soul. And listen to what he says. He says, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, the word of God, the word of truth, the gospel, and the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, choke the gospel, choke the truth of God. It becomes unfruitful. And so if we treasure earthly wealth and possessions in our heart, then it will rob us, Jesus says, of the word of God and ultimately a fruitful life for the kingdom. And even so, there will be those who will miss the gospel. There will be those who will ultimately miss out on salvation because of the deceitfulness of wealth. That's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 10, for the love of money, the love of wealth is the root of all sorts of evil, all kinds of evil. Some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so money, not bad as we have seen, but the love, the treasuring of money above God is. And it can lead to all sorts, all kinds of griefs and troubles and evils. Even the longing, Paul says, the chasing after money and wealth can cause many troubles. And that's what we see in the text today. As we see the troubles what, what money can do to somebody who truly treasure it above God. And so look at our text today, James 5, verse 1. Listen to what James says. We're going to see today a word of warning. Church, take heed. Words of judgment. And then at the same time, we'll hear a word of encouragement. A word of exhortation toward the end. Listen to what James says. He says, come now, listen up, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. So there are those in the church, um, as James has been mentioning in the last chapter or two, he's been addressing issues in the church, and here is another one. There are those who had wealth, those who had an abundance of money, but the issue is here, they're treasuring that wealth above God. As we have just read about, they've literally had wealth choke out the word of God in their life. And so money was their master, not the Lord. And so what does James call these to do? He calls them to weep. He calls them to howl, meaning to sob out loud, literally to, to scream. It kind of gives you the picture of kind of a, someone who, who's maybe at a funeral, especially in the Middle East, if you ever see funerals, how people are wailing sobbing in the streets over the one who has passed away. It's kind of the idea of that. And the idea is that James wants them to know that you need to repent. You need to mourn. You need to groan. And because there are days of hardship, there are days of trouble that are coming. Even so much judgment when Jesus returns is the context here as well. So this is a word of judgment, a word that, hey, you will face trouble. It will fall upon you because you treasure riches above God himself. And so he's encouraging you to repent, to turn, to recognize your error and treasuring riches above 
God. Now look at, how do they do this? How, how do they do this? So look at verse two and three. He says, your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in these last days that you have stored up for your treasure. Why does something rot? Why does something develop rust? It sits for a long time, right? You have it past its date of expiration. Its fruitfulness has expired. It's, it's gone bad. It hasn't been used. And there were those in the church who had stored up food, stored up even wood maybe, or meat, and it went bad. They stored up gold and silver, and it rusted. They stored up garments, maybe robe-like cloaks or um, outer garments that we be wore that were sometimes inherited that had jewelry on them. They would keep them and, and moths would go in and, and eat their clothes. And so what do we have here? We have what's called hoarding, right? Anybody watch the show Hoarders? Yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Just wondering. Oh, James says that these things that you're hoarding, that have now turned to rust, things that have expired, uh, that they no longer are useful to you. They've been eaten by moths. Literally says here, he says, they will become a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. And so what is James saying here? He's saying how you handle your possessions and your money will reveal something, will reveal the heart that you have, it will stand also as proof against you. And ultimately, toward those who store up treasure on earth, it will become even your executioner, is the idea. And he says in verse 3, it is in these last days, meaning the time between Jesus has come and the time that Jesus will return, that you have stored up your treasure. Meaning, I think what James is saying here with the exclamation point is hey, listen, you have your treasure. You have your treasure in this window, but you will miss out on eternal treasure, eternal reward in the age to come. I think that's what's implied there. I think what Jesus is saying here, instead of holding on to wealth and, and protecting it, hoarding it like these are, this isn't saving, this isn't Wise planning that's happening here. This is a heart of greed, right? This is a heart that has a closed hand and isn't generous. So these in the church were not just hoarders, but listen next to verse 4. They're horrible employers. In verse 4 it says, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you. They cry out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. So they had workers in the field, maybe day laborers or day workers, and they would cut their grass and they would collect the harvest for them. And what did they do? They didn't pay them. They didn't even just delay in payment. They did not pay them at all. And listen to what the law says in Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun 
sets before it goes down, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry, listen to this, against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. It's interesting, what was warned in Deuteronomy by God to Moses, to the Israelites, James uses the same thing here. He says at the end of verse 4, the outcry of those who did the harvesting, who you failed to pay, it has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. They would not even pay their workers. And then look at verse 5 and 6. Not only that, listen to how they lived. This was their desire. This was their, their heart's great longing. It says, you have lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. And then it says, he, speaking of the righteous man, does not resist you. And so they increased their wealth, literally through robbery, right? Robbering others of their wages. And they pursued pleasure, luxury, and no, had no self-denial whatsoever. And they went out of control is the picture here. They closed their eyes to the poor and the needs of others, to the work of God, living for their own desire. And what does it say here? You have fattened your hearts. You see, they have nourished, they have fed their hearts stuff. They have fed their desires to have more, to consume with what they hoarded, with what they robbed and keeping the wages back. And as a result, what do we see here? A, a downward spiral. To even the point of the end of verse 6, they're even willing to do what? To kill. We no doubt see this in our world. We see it in the day we live in. We see this attitude of get everything you can any way you can. But the result here is what? Judgment. No doubt wrath. I think what we have here is not only a picture of individuals, but a, a picture even of a society, of an, even a culture of corruption that, that I think James is trying to picture. Even the New Testament time, this was definitely present. You had judges who would receive bribes. They were unfair in the legal system toward the poor in the needy. And so he was encouraging, I think, as well, the church, not only with what they would face up against individuals and even in their own life, that they would be on guard from such living, but what they would face as a culture and a society as well, at the hands even of the legal system. And so he is encouraging them here. He calls them the righteous man. And he says here, that they, even under oppression, even facing corruption, even not getting paid, facing suffering, they did not resist. But they continued to do what? I think the idea here is they continued to live out the truth of God. And that's why he calls them a righteous man. And so I want to push the pause button real quick because the question for us this morning as we read this, this kind of attitude, this kind of heart, is we've got to ask our own self. What kind of effect does wealth and possessions have on us? Has it blinded us? The longing and, and, and the wanting of more, does, does it have its reach? Has it affected us? Has it blinded us to the needs of others? Do we have a closed hand? James, I think, shares this to 
the church, obviously to call out some folks, but also for the church to be on guard, to, to take heed as well, because the deceitfulness of wealth is real. If we're all honest in here, as we, we hear this word, especially where we hear the word rich, and when we live in a day, in an age where we, many in here would qualify, and maybe all of us in here, in the way James is speaking, is rich. We have. And so it's a warning for us all to take heed and to make sure that that we are not being led astray by the longing for more, by the wealth and the possessions that we have, but instead that we have the heart that he brings up next. Listen to what he says in verse 7. He he changes the focus here, and I think he slightly did this in verse 6 as he talks about the righteous man living under oppression and saying, okay, he's not going to resist this rich man. He's going to turn his other cheek is what Jesus says. And then he turns in verse 7 and elaborates more on the heart that we should have. Listen to what he says. He says, therefore, be patient. Be patient, brethren. So he's talking to the church. He says, until the coming of the Lord, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. James calls us here to be patient, but I want you to see this here. Look at that word, therefore. I think this is a a powerful placement of James here with this word. He says, therefore. I think what he's saying here in light of what I've just said, but not only what I just said in verse 6, but I want you to go back even further. I want you to go back in chapter 4. I want you to go back in chapter 3. I think James is painting a picture here. He's saying in in light in chapter 3 of those who live according to the wisdom of the world, according to those who live selfishly, according to James 4, those who quarrel, those who fight, those who slander, and so he's painting this picture. And then he's saying in James 5, those who misuse wealth, those who mistreat employees, those who live corrupted lives, fixed on pleasure, having more and more driven by consumerism. He says those... Those live out the last days this way. But he says here, but for you, for us, we must be patient. Why? Because the Lord's coming. Because Jesus is coming. I think he's doing something here. I think what he's showing us is, man, there's these before and their focus is these, these last days in the sense of, hey, this age and what they can get now. But he says, church, Jesus is coming. There's a new age that he's bringing in. There's more to life than, than here. And so how are we going to live in the here and now in light of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing? And he tells us here, how we should live, be patient. I think patience here means to adopt an attitude where you faithfully follow the Lord in the midst of wrong suffered, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of corruption, in the midst of temptation that tries to, to draw us away and, and to seek after treasures here on earth, but instead 
that we would be a waiting farmer. That we would be a waiting farmer. And back in the New Testament days in this first century, they would plant in late October or early November. They would wait and wait for the rains to come. They would wait for the rains to follow after they would plant and for the crop to mature in late March and early April before they would harvest. And they would wait patiently for the harvest. And so instead of the attitude, I think James is saying here, of this instant gratification, getting what you can any way you can like the rich were doing, their reward alone is the here and now. But we're to be patient. We're to wait like the farmer for eternal rewards until the Lord comes. It was funny, this spring break, my family and I got blessed to go with Young Life and on a ski trip and got to speak up in uh, uh, Colorado at their ski retreat. And I remember just the, the blessing of getting to ski. I mean, that, that is just a cool blessing. Kind of a, I looked at it as kind of a once-a-lifetime deal. And, um, but I remember when we were skiing, um, skiing will test, test you, and I don't mean, for, for me, it wasn't actually skiing. I mean, that would test me, but what tests you is taking four kids skiing. Um, and what tests you even more is all the equipment and having to lug that stuff around. And I remember, I remember day, well, day one was a great test, and um, so I'm the speaker, so I got to be kind of an example, Right? <laughs> and so I remember day one I'm like man it, this is hard this is this is somebody said this kind of be like a vacation <laughs> and I remember day two uh Jonathan Wimberly I don't know Jonathan had this morning but uh I remember he came up to me he said one word he goes patience He said it several times on that trip, um, and I loved what he said. He says, that's, that's what I've been learning, patience, and he kept saying it, and I, and I loved it, and I just, that, that stuck with me, and as I was reading the text this week, I just remembered Jonathan saying several times during the week, patience, patience. We don't like to hear that, especially if, if somebody's implying that we need to have it, <laughs> Right? Patience is tough, and, and Jesus is calling us here through the writing of James. The Holy Spirit wants us to live these patient lives, these lives of waiting, these lives of endurance, these lives of perseverance. Words when we hear, we hear, wow, that's, those are tough words, words of discipline, words that means that, that we're going to face tough stuff. But I think the key is found at the end of verse 8. Listen to what he says, because he says, you too be patient. So be patient like the farmer. Wait. Don't just be satisfied with instant gratification and the rewards of this earth. But wait, because Christ is coming, and he wants you to endure and wait upon him. But how do we do that? Listen to what he says. Strengthen your hearts. I think the key phrase, honestly, I just think it's the key phrase. I think it's compared, if you go back um, to verse 5, I believe. Yeah, verse 5, where he says, you have fattened hearts. Right? 
the, the rich, the wealthy who were living for the treasures of this world, they had fattened their hearts with stuff and, and, and pleasing their, their fleshly desires. But here, James says, strengthen your hearts. Let's think about this for a second. Fat, when you're strengthening something, what are you building? Muscle? Okay, so, so let's think about this. The issue is, is diet, <laughs> right? I mean, what are we taking in? I mean, I think James wants us to think that way. What, what are we feeding our heart? I ain't talking about food. I'm talking about all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the Word of God that can tr- truly strengthen our hearts. And the idea that he has here is, is being fixed. This idea of strengthening our hearts is the idea of having your heart stable. It, the hymn that, that we're prone to wonder. Our hearts are prone to wonder. But James here says here, may your heart be stable, may it be placed firmly, may it be set fast, may it be constant, may it be fixed. It's, it's the writer in Hebrews where he says we have this great cloud of witnesses so, so, so run the race that's, that's fixed before you that Jesus has and run it with endurance. But how do we do that? We do it by being fixed on Jesus, having our eyes, our heart fixed on the author, perfecter of our faith. He says, consider, consider Jesus who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will do what? Not grow weary and lose heart. And so our heart is to be strengthened by being fixed on Jesus. We're to be nourished on not only this idea of being fixed on Christ, but how do we do that? By being nourished on the Word of God. And think about this in Jeremiah 15, 16. Jeremiah says, your words were found and I, I ate them. I took them in. I digest them. They became a part of me is the idea. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Psalm 119.11, your word I've treasured in my heart. I've stored it up that I may not sin against you. See, discomfort, problems, corruption, you name it, temptation, they're going to come. The question is how do we respond when they do? That's how James ends. Listen to what he says in the last couple of verses here. Verse 9, he says, do not complain, brethren, as a result, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged, but behold, the judge is standing right at the door. We saw in verse 6, the righteous did not resist their oppressors. But here, we're not even to complain against one another as well. Don't complain about present problems. That that doesn't mean we don't share and and, and pray concerning issues, but, but we're not to be bitter. We're not to blame others. We're not to grumble is the idea. He says, this is what a patient attitude looks like. Why? Because Jesus could return at any moment, he says. The judge is standing at the door. And so live patiently, live sacrificially now. And he says, do this with examples in mind. Listen to what he says, and we'll wrap up. Listen to what he says in verse 10. I love this. Obviously, we have the example of Christ who, who under the hostility of sinners, faced death, and he endured that. But listen to what he says. James says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke of the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Think of the prophets of old. Many of you 
You think of different ones. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, who lived under the regime of Nebuchadnezzar and faced oppression, hostility, no doubt. And we can think of many others that come to mind this morning, but think of how they endured is the idea. I love what James does here. He implies, one, we should know the prophets, but I think the idea is that he wants us to understand we are not so far removed from that. He says, hey, think about these guys, just like you, tempted in in every way, faced trials, weren't perfect, but they were patient, they endured, they waited for the eternal reward. Not only the prophets of old, but he emphasizes Job here. One may read that and be like, wait a second. I thought in verse 9 it says, don't complain. (laughs) I don't know if this is an accurate statement. I'll just say it anyway. Um, But it seems like Job complained out of faith. Can we say that? Maybe. Someone may email me later and says, I don't know if that makes sense. But I, I think maybe he did. Um. I think Job had a, had a picture of God. Sometimes, I mean, I read Job and I just scratch my head, right? And then I feel just like him in, in so many ways and I could not imagine going through what he went through. I could not even imagine, right? But you think about Job and he had a picture of God. And, and I think what Job struggled with was that he had this picture of God, but God was showing him, okay, this is who I really am. This is how I really work. And I think Job was working through that. And Job was trying to figure out, as he endured, as he understood suffering, as he understood problems and troubles that were big. I mean, can you imagine losing your family and losing everything you had and and going through what he went through? And he was trying to figure out God and what God was doing and what God's purpose and what God's plan was. And understanding, okay, God, in your love and in your mercy, how could you allow all of this? And God just giving him understanding that, hey, listen, I am compassionate, I am loving, I am caring, and I am for you even in the midst of this. And I think that's what he wants us to understand, that, hey, listen, there are going to be times where the breaks don't fall our way, and it seems like they never come our way. And there are going to be times where we lose a job. There are going to be times where maybe we lose a couple jobs in the same year. There's going to be times when man, things just don't work out. We don't get that promotion. There are going to be times where we face what people in this text face. Maybe we didn't get paid for a job. Maybe we didn't get paid fully for a job. Um, Maybe we, we were supposed to get a raise and we didn't get that raise. I mean, you can fill in the blank, but, but maybe we go through these times and we feel like, okay, God, what, what are you doing? What I don't understand. You're allowing me to go through this thing. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's health stuff. And, and God, all this suffering. And we go through this, and I think God wants to paint a picture. And sometimes it, it doesn't necessarily fit with the picture that we have. And I think that's what James went, or excuse me, what Job went through. It's amazing to think at the end of the day, and he said this up front, Job did, that whether the Lord gives or the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Wow. That's a heart of of patience and endurance. A heart that truly trusted the Lord, even in the face of temptations and even in the face of not understanding at all. 
and even in the face at times of questioning why. And so I think to close, I just want you to think about this. Look at verse 11 as we close today. He says, when you look at the endurance of Job, you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. And the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Here's what I think what James is saying here. You're going to face trials of many kinds, my dear brethren. Does that sound familiar? He says, as you do in James 1-2, consider it pure joy. Because guess what? God has a purpose. God has a plan. The plan is to produce in you endurance, patience. And the ultimate goal is that you and I would grow up into maturity, that you and I would grow up and be more like our Savior. And I love what he says at the end here. He, He says, listen, the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I think he wants us to understand, hey, we may go through these things and we may, we may question, we may not understand fully what God is doing, but he wants us to remember, hey, God has a plan and his plan is to grow us up in him. And I think what James is saying is there is nothing more loving and compassionate and merciful than that. Don't forget that. Don't forget through it all the character of God. God's not changing. This is who he is, James says. He's compassionate. He is caring. He is gracious. He is merciful. And so await his return. And until then, endure. Live patiently. For as you store up your treasures in heaven, you will be rewarded. Better to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, than to hear Jesus say, depart from me. I did not know you. Let's pray. As we pray this morning, I just want to encourage us. I think James wants you and I just to be on guard. To not fall into the trap of, of the love of stuff and wealth and money. And, and it can be easy. It, it can be tempting at times. But instead, I think his prayer for us, his encouragement for us today is to be fixed on Christ. To be fixed on his mission. And what the Lord wants to do for his renown and for his glory. And that you and I would treasure that above earthly treasure. And so, Father God, today I I pray 